I'm Jane Palmer. And I'm Beth Bartell. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, March 31st, 2015. Coming up, it's Volcano Day. We speak with Alexandra Witsey and Jeff Knipe, authors of the book Islands on Fire. The book tells the story of a surprisingly little-known Icelandic eruption that had a big impact on the world and may help us understand both the effects of colossal eruptions and a changing climate. We're going to start today with a tour of volcanic goings-on around the world. Beth, you studied volcanoes for one of your masters. Are there any volcanoes going off right now? There are, and there actually there actually always are. Um, for one thing, Kilauea volcano on the Big Island of Hawaii has been essentially in constant eruption since 1983. Mount Erebus, which is in Antarctica, has an actively convecting lava lake, and there are a few other volcanoes around the world too that are pretty much in constant activity. Um, many listeners may have heard about or seen that Villarica in Chile has been in the news recently and also Colima in Mexico. It's pretty easy to find some nice footage of both with a quick search on the Internet. And to put global volcanic activity in a little context, the Smithsonian and USGS put out a weekly report of volcanic activity, both new and ongoing um, and last week's report listed 19 active volcanoes all around the Pacific Ring of Fire. These are in Russia, Japan, Indonesia, New Zealand, Chile, Central America, Mexico, and Alaska. Um, and while it's not active right now, I'd like to mention that this year marks the, well, the 200th anniversary of Tambora, which is a um, huge eruption in Indonesia, and also the 35th anniversary of the cataclysmic eruption of Mount St. Helens in 1980. Um, the volcano lost its top on May 18th, but the signs of unrest began in March, and the USGS is posting daily on Facebook about what was happening exactly 35 years ago leading up to the eruption. So if you guys are interested, check it out. And 35 years ago today, for example, according to today's post, um, there were so eruptions or explosions had started at the volcano. Small explosions continue today, and People are flocking to the volcano to check it out. At one point, 70 private planes were hovering around the volcano, waiting to uh, to catch a glimpse of the crater. So you talked about a lot of volcanoes there. Are any of those a threat to us now? The ones that are active right now are... Um, Probably not so much a threat globally, but many of these volcanoes are capable of, of wreaking some havoc on nearby communities. Um, several of the volcanoes erupting now did cause evacuations. Um, but so far, all of these eruptions have been relatively small. Uh, for example, at Villarica in Chile, last I read, uh, the volcano is still spewing some ash, but things are returning to normal. Kids are returning to school. Business is getting on back to normal. And um, folks are keeping an eye out for changes in our alert. But... Um, but things are more or less returning to normal. So what are the volcanoes we most need to worry about now, <laughs> in the near future? <laughs> the volcanoes we most need to worry about are either close to large populations or capable of huge eruptions. And although, especially with global air traffic, I've heard it said that there are no longer any remote volcanoes. 
Um, but what many consider the world's deadliest volcanoes are not necessarily the world's biggest volcanoes. Volcanoes like Vesuvius in Italy or Mount Rainier in Washington uh, are particularly dangerous because they're near large populations. Um, lava isn't so much of a threat because it's nice and slow moving, but pyroclastic flows, which are hot avalanches of gas and ash and rock, are, and they move a lot faster than lava, um, as do lahars or volcanic mud flows. And these can either threaten people directly or take out major infrastructure. But if these volcanoes were far from population centers, they would be much less threatening. However, there are other volcanoes that are capable of having much further reaching effects, whether they're close to population centers or not. And that is what we're going to talk about today with our guests. Check out the geology. Good morning. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Beth Bartel. In 1783, a crack opened up in the earth, began to spew out lava and ash and poisonous gases, and didn't stop for eight months. The volcano was Laki, one of many volcanoes in Iceland, and the effects of the eruption went global. Laki's story is one of geology, of chemistry, of atmospheric science, and of biology. Here to tell us what we've learned from Lockie and how we can apply the lessons of Lockie today is Alexandra Witsey and Jeff Knipe, longtime science writers and co-authors of the book Island on Fire. Welcome to our show. Good morning. Morning. Sorry, switching around papers. Where are my questions? Um, so let's start by um, by setting the scene. So tell uh, tell the listeners what it was like. You guys went and visited Lockie in 2012. What was it like to stand at the side of the eruption? What does it look like now? And then tell us what it would have looked like in 1983 when it was in eruption. Sure, Beth. Well, I'll start out with what it looks like now. Iceland, of course, is just an amazing landscape. Wherever you go, it's just pretty much raw lava, maybe covered by moss here and there. And, and Lockheed's very much like that. When you, um, It's in south-central Iceland, and to actually get to Lockheed, you have to sort of travel the ring road around Iceland and then go inland for a ways. And the journey is very much like traveling back in time. You're going across this raw landscape of, of black lava, of crazy rivers, of just beautiful, um, beautiful moss and, and, and very, very low shrubs. And it gets bleaker and bleaker the farther you get in. And then when you reach Lockheed itself, it's not as outstanding as you might think. It's not a single volcano. It's not a big peak like you would think of like Vesuvius or Mount St. Helens. What it is basically is it's a line of craters in the ground. And if you walk up a mountain in the middle, the mount that's actually called Lockheed, you can look on either side of you and you can see these craters stretching to the horizon. It's about 16 miles of craters and it basically represents where these fountains of fires ripped open on this morning in June of 1783 and began spewing fire along a massive rift. So what would it have looked like then? If you had been standing there in June 
1783, what would you have seen? Well, I think you might have wanted to run away pretty fast, but <laughs> we, do know, we do know quite a bit about what it would have looked like because we have some chronicles from, from people who live nearby, in particular a pastor named John Steingrenson, and he describes how, how one day basically black ash began coming from the hills to the north. The hills are where this long fountain of fire would have been happening and a big glowing, uh, a big glow appearing in the evening. And if you had been standing at its base or as, as close as you might have wanted to get, you would have seen a sheet of flame fountaining into the air, much taller than anything like the Empire State Building, as much as a kilometer or more than a kilometer high, a sheet of flame. So we'll get back to John, but tell us about tell us about the effects of eruption. Give us a feel for why this eruption is important. So you talk about lava and so we're talking about some near field effects, lava, and then and then work us out from from the local to global. What happened? Okay. Uh, well, the thing about this eruption, it was totally unique in in insofar as other world volcanoes are concerned. It went on for eight months, for one thing. So it was a major pollution event. There was there were ten or twelve eruptions during this time, <clears throat> and this sent this. Uh, toxic uh, sulfur dioxide cloud high into the uh, lower stratosphere. And that's what caused most of the problems. The, uh, it got caught up in the polar vortex, dragged down to the south, in uh, and around and across uh, Europe. And um, the, the devastating thing about it is that it just went on for so long. It was only uh, on the VEI, the Volcanic Explosivity Index, is uh, of four. Mount St. Helens was a five. So <clears throat> as far as explosive power, it didn't really have that, but it had this longevity, this staying power to pollute uh, all of Europe. So since this is a science show, let's get a little bit into the chemistry. Tell us, tell us about the sulfur. What happens to the sulfur from, give us a life cycle of, uh, life cycle of the sulfur. Sure. So Lockheed was really extraordinary in how much sulfur it put out, something like 120 million tons of sulfur dioxide um, over the course of these eight months. And uh, the reason it was so rich in sulfur is something that volcanologists are still mostly trying to figure out. But for some reason, whatever magma reservoir it tapped was extremely rich in sulfur. And it was extremely um, powerful in extracting that sulfur and, and putting it out in these big fire fountains. Um, basically, it would have been blasting out at the speed of like a jet engine. And then what happens is this SO2 gets into the atmosphere. It oxidizes into these aerosol particles. And there it can mix with water and turn into essentially acid rain. So you're talking about acidic rain that falls in the countryside around Iceland and is also transported long distances to Europe. So all across Europe, France, Germany, England, places like that, in the summer of 1783, there's records of, for instance, trees withering and dropping their leaves and, and shrubs just getting all nasty and shriveled up. And that's because they're basically getting acid rain upon them. So you mentioned that there are records in Europe. Tell us about, tell us about some of the information sources for your, for your book. Okay, well, uh, John Steingrimson, or Jorn, if you want to be more proper uh, Icelandic about it, uh, was a Lutheran pastor who lived in a village called Kloster in South uh, Iceland, Southern Iceland. And he happened to be very well uh, uh, placed to, to, to uh, witness what happened with this eruption. And, uh, but he was also, in, in addition to being a devout priest, he was also somewhat of a natural scientist. He, he 
observed nature. He was very interested in what was going on. He noticed uh, multiple layers of lava indicating past eruptions and that sort of thing. So his records, a daily journal of the eruption in Iceland, was very important to the documentation of what, what happened. In England, we had uh, a naturalist named Gilbert White, uh, who kept a daily journal, you know, here, oh, today my honeysuckles are really blooming wonderfully. <laughs> and then the next day, this dry fog came down there and just wiped everything out. And so he kept a daily record of this constantly uh, while he was down there. So, and then there were, you know, this was the day and age when, when newspapers were really coming on strong. I mean, in, in, in London alone, I think there were like two dozen newspapers. So <clears throat> you had uh, daily reports in London and France and all the other countries of this strange dry fog, this this sulfur dioxide fog that was causing uh, so much havoc. And so from all of these records, um, you know, and and it's not counting uh, ice cores or anything like that, just just records, contemporary records at the time, you can put together a pretty good account, and that's what we've done with this book. And I'll just add that there are a lot of modern scientists or, or some modern scientists who have gone back to try and get a lot of these historical records. So we're relying on their work as well, too. I mean, there have been some historians in the U.K. who've basically waded through death records from, you know, parishes all across of England to see were people dying that summer at higher rates? And the answer is yes. And, and wading through French language documents, you know, censuses of all these obscure little parishes across France to see if there's records of, again, this strange dry fog in the summer of 1783 and what it was doing to people. So there's been uh, a push among a couple of historians, historians of volcanoes and historians of science, to gather these records together and to really see what was the incredible effect of this volcano that summer. So that sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> um, why, why do we or why should we care about this eruption? We should care about this eruption because we think it's one of the great natural disasters that gives us a glimpse at the kinds of things we need to really worry about and be prepared for. So just as an example, in the summer of, in the spring of 2010, we have that unpronounceable Icelandic volcano that went off and didn't actually kill anybody except one person who managed to die of exposure because they got too close to it and ran out of fuel. Um, But basically it was the 2010 eruption showed us how vulnerable we are to Icelandic eruptions. You'll remember that's the volcano that put so much ash into the atmosphere over Europe that basically the the aviation authorities grounded planes for about a week. They were worried about what would happen if jet engines flew through these volcanic ash clouds. And again, nobody was killed, but the economy ground to a halt. I mean, the economic impact of this one eruption that didn't kill anybody was something on the order of $5 billion. Now, that's just a tiny taste of what might happen when something like Lockheed occurs. Um, Lockheed in 1783 was a much more powerful eruption than what we saw in 2010. It wasn't just ash. It was this noxious noxious cloud of gas. Um, We need to think about Lockheed. We need to think about things like Lockheed happening because they're an example of the kind of thing that the earth can throw at us and the things that we need to be prepared for. You are listening to KGNU, How on Earth. I'm Beth Bartel, and we are talking with Alexandra Witsey and Jeff Knipe, science writers and co-authors of the book Island on Fire, about a devastating and surprisingly little-known eruption of Lockheed Volcano in Iceland in 1783. Um, so you guys go into some gruesome details in your book <laughs> about about the about the effects of of Lockheed, but especially um, some local effects. Jeff, could you tell us about those? Sure. 
Um, the magma chamber that the volcano tapped into is especially rich in fluorine. Fluorine is a very noxious, toxic, gaseous element uh, that you don't want to have, you don't want to ingest. The whole uh, pasture land, like I think it was 7,000 miles around the eruption, was salted, the ash was salted with fluorine. The animals, livestock, ate the fluorine-laced grass and were uh, sub- became poisoned by, from fluorine poisoning. This is a very uh, unpleasant way to go for an animal or for, for people. Uh, it gets, you know, in, in the small doses, uh, it can harden your tooth, tooth enamel and it can, you know, strengthen bone mineral, that sort of thing. But in large doses, <clears throat> I don't know exactly how it does it, but it, it creates more bone growth. So you have these pieces of bone coming out of your joints and out of your ribs and out of your fingers. And this happened to people as well, correct? It, it apparently did. Um, based on John Steingrimson's account of how some people died, uh, they, uh, they exhibited all the symptoms of fluorine poisoning, including blackening of the tongue. The tongue fell out. Teeth fell out. People had ruptures. Oh, I, I can go into more detail if you like. <laughs> Maybe we'll stop there. <laughs> Um, so what was the total what was the total casualty count from this and and is it do we even have an idea of what the total count is? Um, we have some ideas and the ideas vary a lot. So the official death toll is basically on the order of ten thousand people. If you look up in the volcanoes of the world, the big encyclopedia, uh, there's a very specific number which is something like nine thousand three hundred and forty, which is um, an incredibly detailed number, and that's gathered from the censuses taken around Iceland of the people who died in Iceland. Most of those did not die um, directly. I mean, they weren't swallowed up in lava or suffocated by ash, but they, they died in the years following Lockie because, um, as Duff was mentioning, the, the, the grass was poisoned, the livestock began to die, and it was actually famine that set in for about two years after the Lockie eruption, and that's what killed most people in Iceland. So one-fifth of everybody in Iceland died after this. So that's 10,000 people out of 50,000 in Iceland. It was a devastating, devastating impact for that country. But then, if you sort of start to talk, what about the rest of the world? So if you start to add in, for instance, people who might have been breathing in this acid rain in this fog across Europe, and then if you start to look at longer-term climate changes, so uh, just to talk a little bit about more of the global effect of Lockheed, these sulfur particles didn't just cause acid rain that people were breathing in in the fog. What they also did was they reflected sunlight back and they cooled the planet beneath, right? This is a well-known phenomenon that volcanic eruptions, if they put out enough sulfur high enough into the atmosphere, they can literally shade the planet beneath and cool the planet down for a couple of degrees. Um, And that happened with Lockheed. And as a consequence... um, there were climate change all around the Northern Hemisphere. We had cold winters. We had uh, the shutting down of the African monsoon, which meant no water in the Nile, which meant no um, no farming and agriculture along the Nile. So there turned out to be a huge famine in Egypt. That is all because of these 
aerosol particles coming from Lockheed. And what I'm getting at is if you start to add in the consequences of things like the people who starved in Egypt because their rains weren't coming because of Lockheed, you get much higher than 10,000. You can get maybe as high as a million people. There's one scholar who argues that as many as 6 million people have died as a result of the Lockheed eruption. He's adding in all sorts of climate changes in the Northern Hemisphere in the 1780s. So it's 10,000 officially, maybe on the order of a million if you start adding in these, these famines. And if you, if you believe these scholars who push it even higher, as many as 6 million people died. And there were some other complicating factors in terms of atmosphere, right? So what are some of the other... What are some other things we need to consider? So this volcano didn't erupt in a vacuum. Right, exactly. So there, for instance, there was a, an El Nino going on around the same time. Um, there was another eruption in Japan also in the same year. Um, so you have to sort of try and untangle all these different effects. It can be really simple to say, oh, look at the strange weather that's going on. That must all be due to this one volcanic eruption. But you have to wonder, how much did the volcano in Japan contribute? Well, it turns out it didn't erupt that much, and it didn't get very high into the atmosphere. So the answer there is probably not much. How much did the El Nino of 1783 to 1784 contribute to the weird weather? Well, it probably played some role. But if you take modern climate models and you say, how much did Lockheed's particles cool the planet? you get a very, very strong effect. So you can say, yes, an El Nino was going on at the same time, but modern-day climate models tell us that Lockheed did have a significant effect and was a big player in the weird changes that were going on throughout the Northern Hemisphere in the 1780s. In the book, you guys say, this is a quote, volcanoes are natural laboratories for exploring the consequences of disturbing the planet. So do we have more to learn from, from Lockheed and similar volcanoes other than just how a volcano could affect our planet? Yeah, I think Lockheed has a lot to tell us about, again, what to expect and what to prepare for. Um, it's not just a one-off thing that happened that we think, oh, look at this strange historical curiosity. Look at this weird summer in Europe. Um, look at how Lockheed shut down the Asian monsoon or the African monsoon one time. Um, it can tell us really the extremes and the possibilities that we need to be prepared for. Uh, you know, volcanoes don't erupt on schedule, as you know, but the the estimates for how often a Lockheed-style eruption might happen is about once every 200 to 500 years. It's been about 230 years since the last one, so maybe it's something that we need to think about might happen in the future. Is there a way to prepare for these kinds of eruptions? <clears throat> well, the, um, the UK has put this as at the, uh, a Lockheed-style eruption as one of their top threats, but there's no way to to evacuate a continent. Um, and so the best uh, idea seems to be to shelter in place, issue certain gas masks if something like this happens again, and um, uh, just try to stay and be aware of, you know, keep, keep their finger on the pulse of, the, of these uh, volcanoes and uh, trying to get some heads up on them before they go off. Do we need to worry here in North America, in Colorado? We do, to a certain extent, right? So we're not on the front lines if something in Iceland were to erupt again because we're not that amazingly close. But as we've seen with the story of Lockheed, 
there can be global consequences. So in that winter, that winter after Lockheed erupted, 1783 to 1784, there was a bitterly cold winter here in North America. Um, in Alaska, the Inuit talk about these, this time when summer did not come. The tree rings record this incredibly cold winter. In the east, it was incredibly cold and snowy. Um, there's no records from Colorado that particular winter. But yes, we do need to worry about that kind of thing here. Thank you so much for speaking with us. That was Alexander Witsey and Jeff Knipe, co-authors of the book Island on Fire, about the devastating effects of the eruption of Lockheed in Iceland in the 1700s. Alex and Jeff live here in Boulder. For more information on the book, visit our website at www.howonearthradio.org. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Kendra Kruger. This week's show was produced by me, Beth Bartel, and engineered by Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Jimmy Buffett. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Jane Palmer. And I'm Beth Bartel.